Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University, who talks about Brazil's October 2nd presidential election and the fate of the Amazon rainforest linked to accelerating climate change. Mary Crow and Nadia Hutchinson who spoke at a September 8th Washington, D.C. rally opposing the deal made between West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Democratic Party leaders to complete the controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline. And Dr. James Kahn, professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, who discusses the decline in life expectancy in the U.S. and how that decrease in longevity is related to the failure of America's for-profit health insurance system. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Days after Chilean voters soundly defeated a proposed new progressive constitution, 36-year-old President Gabriel Boric announced a shakeup in his cabinet. He elevated more moderate center-left figures into the government, including the appointment of former Santiago mayor Carolina Toja as Minister of the Interior. Toja is part of a generation of center-left figures who helped guide Chile's transition from dictatorship to democracy in the 1990s. The proposed constitution, which would have replaced the 1980 constitution, drafted under General Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship, would have enshrined gender parity and reproductive rights, promised action on climate change, and recognized Chile's indigenous people's rights for the first time in the country's history. The proposal was defeated by a 62 to 38 percent margin. Only two years ago, 78 percent of Chileans approved a plebiscite to draft a new constitution. The Guardian reports the defeat was in part linked to rumors and fake news spread about the charter's impact. Boric has reiterated his commitment to continuing efforts at drafting a new constitution. U.S. Senator Chris Von Holland is calling for an independent investigation into the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was shot dead while covering an Israeli army offensive in a Janine refugee camp. A new inquiry released by the Israeli government admitted that Akla, a longtime correspondent for Al Jazeera in the occupied territories, was likely killed by an Israeli soldier, but no criminal investigation into the incident would take place. Various accounts from major news outlets have rejected the official Israeli explanation for Akla's death. Al Jazeera, Akla's employer, blamed the Israeli army for a 100-day delay in issuing its report and insisted the IDF bears criminal responsibility for the reporter's death. A United Nations report concluded Israeli soldiers fired several seemingly well-aimed bullets in the direction of Akla and other journalists. At the time, Akla was wearing body armor and a helmet marked press. A Palestinian autopsy showed Akla was killed by a single shot to the head. Her murder came after months of attacks by Palestinian militants that killed 19 Israelis. 
Akla's family is now seeking an independent U.S. investigation into the killing. On the road south of Santa Fe, New Mexico, a legacy of disease and death has been left behind by 22 million tons of uranium waste, a byproduct of mining operations to supply fuel to nuclear power plants and build atomic weapons. The uranium mill owned by the Homestake Mining Company, built in 1958, processed and refined uranium ore. The mine left behind waste, which leaked radioactive uranium and selenium into the groundwater and released cancer-causing radon gas into the air. ProPublica reports state and federal agencies were long aware of pollution in the groundwater, but it took decades to take action. Homestake, now owned by Barrick Gold, is buying out properties and plans to bulldoze the affected land before it's transferred to the federal government. In 2014, the Environmental Protection Agency declared the site an unacceptable cancer risk and identified radon as the most dangerous risk to the health of local residents. The state of New Mexico waited until 2019, 49 years after it first identified the toxic pollution, to issue a formal warning that groundwater contained substances which could cause cancer and birth defects. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Brazilians will be going to the polls on October 2nd to vote for the nation's next president. Brazil, with the Western Hemisphere's second-largest population and second-largest economy, is dangerously politically polarized, owing to both the disrupting effects of the COVID pandemic and the attack on democratic institutions by far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. The election pits Bolsonaro, who's seeking re-election, against Brazil's popular former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who represents the left-wing Workers' Party. Both Lula, who served as head of state from 2003 to 2010, and his Workers' Party successor, Dilma Rousseff, were targeted by right-wing politicians and prosecutors, resulting in the impeachment of Rousseff in 2016 and the jailing of Lula on corruption charges in 2018. Brazil's Supreme Court released Lula one and a half years later, ending the mandatory imprisonment of convicts after they lose their first appeal. While polls consistently show Lula well ahead in the election, there's widespread concern that Bolsonaro's supporters, and possibly the military, will follow the example of Donald Trump's supporters in rejecting election results and staging a coup attempt. One of the most important issues in this election for Brazil and the world is protection of the Amazon rainforest, whose fate is linked to accelerating climate change. Your reporter spoke with Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University, who discusses the issues examined in his recent article titled Brazil's Election and the Future of the Amazon. The current most important issue uh, is the future of Amazonia, the the vast region that borders on uh, a number of other countries. Um, 
but which is uh, primarily uh, based in uh, Brazil itself and which is often known as the lungs of the earth because of the exceptional contribution it makes uh, to as a carbon sink. And under many previous uh, Brazilian governments, uh, that great uh, resource um, has given way to a tremendous degree of uh, deforestation. Uh, and this has been uh, caused by a combination of uh, loggers, uh, cattle owners, gold diggers, and, and so on, uh, all of whom have um, not only been uh, destroying the forests and uh, putting in uh, highways uh, in, in the course of uh, getting getting access to all these uh, valuable trees, but they've also been pushing the indigenous folks uh, further and farther back, uh, deeper and deeper into the uh, uh, jungle. Under Bolsonaro, uh, he has taken things to yet an, uh, new heights in terms of uh, deforestation, clearly aligned with corporate interests that both in and outside uh, Brazil uh, that see tremendous value in the tropical uh, hardwoods. And he has uh, been very strongly supported by the military in uh, doing so. Uh, as against the interests of civil society in Brazil, uh, in, in some cases the court system, and the Brazilian Congress. Here's a guy who uh, has no particular interest in preserving uh, the Amazon and certainly uh, has no uh, caring about stewardship of what really is a global resource, not just a Brazilian uh, resource. And so in the process, something very extraordinary has happened, which had not happened uh, until uh, Bolsonaro's rule, and that is that the Amazon as a whole has turned from a carbon sink to a net carbon emitter. And this has been because of the ex exceptional number of fires that have consumed uh, millions of uh, acres just in, in the last uh, few years. And if this keeps up, clearly, according to the best uh, scientific uh, estimates, uh, there won't really be uh, much of a tropical forest. Uh, it'll be more of a, a savanna and a wasteland. And so uh, this election, it really has to do with the future of that extraordinary region. And uh, Lula, as he's popularly known, who has been president before, is uh, clearly committed to forest preservation. And so the, uh, the issues are very clear and um, so far, uh, according to the, uh, all the polls I've seen, uh, Lula is favored. But then that brings in the other issue, which is relevant to Brazilian politics, and that, of course, is the Brazilian military and what stand it will take uh, if the results don't go in favor of Bolsonaro. Mel, from your reading of the electorate in Brazil, how high is the issue of rainforest preservation and climate change to the average Brazilian or are economic issues at the top of their list when they go to the polls in October? Probably economic issues are more important for the average citizen uh, because uh, the Amazon, as, as huge as it is, is still um, a, a remote thing for uh, most Brazilians who, after all, live in, in the major cities, Sao Paulo, Rio. And uh, under Bolsonaro, the economy has has uh, tanked, and um, and so uh, Brazilians, ordinary Brazilians, I think, are probably more concerned with uh, pocketbook uh, issues. Also, uh, close to the top of the list would be uh, government corruption. Um, Lula himself was jailed for a time on, on corruption charges, uh, and of course he he fought that and eventually won a court decision that freed him. Bolsonaro faces uh, uh, corruption charges of his own. 
and where Brazilians will come out on on who's <laughs> who is the more faithful uh, leader uh, remains to be seen. But you know, this is just the sort of thing that creates uh, what Bolsonaro uh, most likes, and again, it's very Trumpian chaos. Uh, his interest has been in, just as with Trump, in dismantling government institutions, not building them up. And I think, you know, in, in an atmosphere of, uh, of corruption and economic uh, disorder, uh, it's hard to say whether the polls are accurate in describing uh, or predicting what uh, average Brazilians will wind up doing when they actually vote. That was Mel Gertov, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Portland State University and Senior Editor at Asian Perspective. His new book is titled Engaging China, Rebuilding Sino-American Relations. Find a link to Mel's article, Brazil's Election in the Future of the Amazon, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Hundreds of climate activists descended on Capitol Hill on September 8th to lobby their elected officials and hold a rally opposing the Frack Gas Mountain Valley Pipeline. Activists opposed the deal made between West Virginia's conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and party leaders to get his vote for the Inflation Reduction Act in exchange for an agreement to finish the pipeline and weaken bedrock environmental protections. While the Inflation Reduction Act included funding for more renewables, the bill also requires the government to auction off oil and gas leases on federal land and in the Gulf of Mexico. At the rally, frontline black and indigenous activists came from the Gulf South, the upper Midwest and beyond, to stand in solidarity with the people from West Virginia and Virginia in their fight against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. During the protest rally, the theme of which was united to stop the Mountain Valley Pipeline and Mansion's dirty deal, Dozens of people spoke about the ties they're forging with others who also live in fossil fuel sacrifice zones. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in the protest action and brings us excerpts from two of the speakers, Mary Crow with the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina and Nadia Hutchinson with the group We Act for Environmental Justice. We hear first from Mary Crow. I thank you, I thank you, I thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming here, for standing here today. We have common ground. We have common ground as human beings, not the color of our skins, not the politics, not the religions, nothing but us being as human beings, good to one another, good to our relatives, the four-legged, the winged, but most of all, understanding that we as indigenous women have gone missing and murdered since colonialism. And we still today do not get the protection from the federal government if we're federally recognized tribes or the state government if we're state recognized tribes. We want the same respect as all the other non-native women that go missing in the United States that are immediately found. We want our women found too, starting back from the beginning. Thank you. Have a good evening. Water is life. Hi, everyone. My name is Nadia. I'm with We Act for Environmental Justice. I, we're DC-based, New York-based, but I live in Baltimore. And I actually just wanted to start 
by acknowledging that there are brothers and sisters in our neighborhoods in Baltimore who do not have clean water right now this day. Um, Baltimore City has been going through a boil water advisory. There's E. coli in our water as we speak, and that's really heavy on my heart right now. So I just wanted to start with that, that there's a lot of folks that probably couldn't be here today because they're busy in the streets trying to make sure that we have water. And that's why many of us are here today as well, because this sacrificing of our lands is hitting us in so many different ways. We look at the West Coast and we're going through enormous heat waves. We look at Mississippi, we don't have water. All throughout the United States, our infrastructure is crumbling, our lives are crumbling, and we're fighting so hard, fighting so hard for a world that we want to save. But who are we saving the world for? Is it for corporations? No. Is it for profit? No. Is it for the wealthy? No. We must end inequity immediately. The longer we allow for inequities to continue, the more vulnerable we all become. All America knows is inequity. All America knows is sacrifice zones upon sacrifice zones upon sacrifice zones. Allowing for one group to be sacrificed is allowing for all of us to be sacrificed. It might not be us this time, it might not be us next time, but it was us last time, and it will probably be us in the future. A true stance of solidarity is binding together and holding the line as we proclaim that we will not be sacrificed. When we stand together, we create opportunities for growth, for dreams of our future. My dream for the future includes clean air, it includes clean water, it includes clean energy. My dream for the future includes the passage of the Environmental Justice for All Act. My dream for the future includes equity, and that means jobs for all of us, economic empowerment for all of us, with no sacrifices for our Earth. We can't empower people with jobs in an economy that we're actively trying to run away from, which is why we can't continue to fund fossil fuel development. That's why we don't and can't have this pipeline, because it's not the empowerment that is needed, and it's not our collective dream for this future. We act for change, and we fight for justice. We act for change, and we fight for justice. Thank you. That was Nadia Hutchinson, Government Affairs Manager with the group We Act for Environmental Justice, preceded by Mary Crow of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation. Both spoke at the September 8th rally, opposing the deal to complete the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Learn more about opposition to the pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The average life expectancy of Americans has fallen over the past two years. The sharpest two-year decline in nearly 100 years 
according to the National Center for Health Statistics. The decline in longevity is linked with the over 1 million deaths caused by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but other factors played an important role as well. Those factors, according to the report, include a rise in deaths from opioid overdoses, heart disease, chronic liver disease, and cirrhosis. According to the research, in 2021, the average American could expect to live until the age of 76, a loss of almost three years since 2019, when Americans could expect to live on average nearly 79 years. The decrease in life expectancy has impacted Native American and Alaska Native communities hardest, with average life expectancy shortened by four years in 2020 alone. While other wealthy nations experienced high mortality rates at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, most had recovered a year later due to high vaccination rates, the adoption of social distancing, and the wearing of masks. Your reporter spoke with Dr. James Kahn, professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California at San Francisco, who assesses the recent report on life expectancy decline and how that decrease in longevity is related in part to the failure of America's privatized for-profit health insurance system. The falling of life expectancy is in fact largely a function of how we did in the COVID pandemic, and there were two major problems there. One is our public, public health response was delayed and inadequate. If you compare our response to other countries around the world, we didn't keep as good track of what was going on, and, and our interventions were not as, as clear and effective as they could have been. Certainly, mask wearing and vaccinations made a huge difference, but it took a long time to get those going. Another critical thing to remember is that we now have very good evidence, which colleagues and I published recently, that lack of insurance, which of course is very common in the United States, contributes hugely to the COVID death toll. Uh, it increased the death toll by about a third compared to a situation where everyone had insurance. That's well over 350,000 extra deaths from COVID due to lack of insurance. So that is definitely a big part of it. Another thing you mentioned, which is a, a serious issue, is the ongoing and growing epidemic of opioid use and abuse. And associated with that, particularly with fentanyl now playing such a, a big role in that, is an increase in overdose rates. This and, and some related problems can be thought of, unfortunately, as uh, deaths of despair. These are people who are using drugs who are uh, struggling to, to deal with issues in their lives, one of which is the fact that health insurance is becoming less and less effective as a way to help people get health care. The deductible, the amount that people need to spend at the beginning of the year before the insurance even kicks in, now is often two to $5,000. So a middle-income family, someone with a health problem, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's something else, they may be very reluctant to go seek medical care because they perceive correctly that the payment is coming out of their own pocket. Their insurance is not going to help them. That, of course, leads not only to worry and despair, but also leads to a decrease in medical care. And that's another contributing factor to the rising uh, mortality that we've seen recently. 
Dr. Khan, there have been many public opinion polls which reveal the real unhappiness and, and anger that many people in this country have about our health care system, our for-profit health insurance system. And there have been politicians and groups advocating for single-payer health insurance. And you yourself, of course, have been active in that. But it seems we haven't made a lot of progress towards adopting a universal health care system such as exists in most other wealthy nations in the world. What hope do you have that we can break this deadlock that has been bought and paid for by the health insurance industry and big pharma that has prevented any progress in moving to a system where people's health won't be exchanged for large profits? Well, I'm not a prognosticator on political movements. I, I do think about the fact that, that the challenges in healthcare are, are coming to a head. They're getting worse and worse as private insurers have a bigger and bigger role in the healthcare system. As you pointed out, dissatisfaction with our healthcare system, including financial problems and health problems, is growing. Public support for single payer, when you ask the question fairly, is inching up. It's it's about two thirds now. If you ask a fair question, like, do you want the government to pay for your health care? If that meant that you'd have to pay new taxes, but all your premiums and cost sharing would go away. If you ask it in a fair way like that, you get about two thirds saying yes. That's a pretty good number. In Congress, the single payer bill uh, with lead author Pramila Jayapal has 120 co-sponsors now. That's not enough to win but it's a lot more than it used to be. So there are uh, movements in the right direction, and I always hold out hope that there will be a recognition of the crisis and then a a response to that where we actually do something to to solve a problem. The other thing I want to relate to that is our crisis in democracy, small d. As you and your listeners, I'm sure know very well, Uh, We are facing some significant crises around polarization and about the uh, narrative uh, uh, perpetrated by the new GOP that there is something unfair about the system. Um, And we face some some real challenges in fighting that off. And I think the fight to preserve democracy and the fight for single payer are closely linked. If you think about it, the kinds of uh, advances that single payer would bring, such as equity, Uh, such as uh, liberty to choose doctors. If you run down the list of democratic principles, single-payer is infinitely more supportive of those principles than is the the current fractured and and troubled healthcare system. So I'm, I'm hoping that we see the salvation of democracy and the salvation of our healthcare as being part of the same fight. That was Dr. James Kahn professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California at San Francisco and editor of Health Justice Monitor. Learn more about the factors contributing to the decline in life expectancy for Americans by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, KCBP in Modesto, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.